You've crossed over that doorway into the strange, the unusual, the weird, the paranormal. Welcome to I Wanna Believe Radio. And now, here's your hosts, those paranormal crack-ups themselves, Bob Penny, Elmer Booster, and Dan Holroyd. And welcome everybody to this edition of I Want to Believe Radio. And you're here with Dan Holroyd and Elmer Boster. Uh, not with us to this time on this episode is Bob Penny, one of our illustrious uh, uh, co-hosts of the program. Uh, Bob uh, unfortunately had to do some mandated uh, overtime there due to the COVID thing going on because Bob is a registered nurse at a local hospital here. And uh, he's got that going on, a couple other things. Uh, Elmer was able to make a change in his schedule to be here. So, Elmer, I'm glad you're here with us. Oh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. I can't wait for this one. This is going to be epic. Yes, we have an exciting show, and uh, I am very, very pleased uh, to introduce uh, Darcy Weir, uh, filmmaker uh, extraordinaire, if I if I can. Uh, I just got done watching uh, Sasquatch Among Wild Men. I, I purchased it. I didn't rent it. I purchased it so I could have other people watch <laughs> it. You know, I wanted to share it along the lines of the family. Uh, also with us is a uh, renowned uh, uh, anthropologist and, and doctor, uh, again, a, a, a legend in and of his, his, himself, too, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum. Um, and uh, we've got David Ellis with us and Shane uh, uh, Corson with us, who are members of the Olympic Project. Uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about, this Olympic Project and, and, and other things that are, I think, probably Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti. Uh, I don't want to go down the list of names because, as Dr. Meldrum said in the documentary, that the list is longer than his arm, and I probably got longer arms than Dr. Meldrum, and I, it would take two hours to name every one of these these uh, individual, I think, cultural phenomenon, if you will, uh, that resonates around this. And I'm going to start with Darcy, if I could, uh, Mr. Weir. Um, I what got you interested, I, I guess, in this whole subject, and then off to to run off and do this film project. Well, uh, what got me interested actually was um, an invite to a native indigenous sort of town in British Columbia back in 2015. Um, a friend of mine who worked in travel was invited to this town in British Columbia, Canada called Harrison Hot Springs. And um, Harrison Hot Springs was the home of a pretty well-known researcher and, and public figure in the Sasquatch research field named John Green. Uh, John Green is now passed, yep. but he, um, you know, he ran a newspaper and, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, all that stuff, he was publishing some of the earliest accounts of Sasquatch sightings that happened in Canada and specifically in British Columbia. Um, but when I was visiting um, Harrison Hot Springs, I was introduced at first to Bill Miller, uh, another researcher in this, this sort of field, this uh, area of study of cryptoz cryptozoology, and um, 
Thomas Steenberg. Thomas Steenberg has published like three books and two of them are on the history of sightings in Alberta, Canada. And another one is a um, full account from the indigenous tribes of British Columbia on the Sasquatch creature. And um, interestingly enough, Harrison Hot Springs is the home of the indigenous tribe called the Stehalis. And the Stehalis are the ones where the word Sasquatch comes from. Sasquatch is a indigenous uh, word that was altered by a, a Canadian uh, reserves teacher that lived in this area of British Columbia back in the 1920s. A man Those by the name Canadians. of Canadians. Yeah. This guy, J.W. Burns, was living on the reserve and he kept hearing this story. And uh, the, the actual pronunciation in the Stehalis, uh, uh, you know, language is Sasket, and J.W. Burns changed that word a bit and called it Sasquatch. So that's why it's such a famous <clears throat> word today. So, anyways, I was in this area. I, to be honest, I wasn't a believer at all in the subject. I was knee deep in research on UFOs and and that type of stuff, and I've produced a few different documentaries in line with um, the study of UFOs. But, um, and, and at this point I had already released, released a documentary on, on UFO related material. But when I got invited to sit down with Bill Miller and Thomas Steenberg, and they just started downloading all this incredible data, this historical fact, I saw the Patterson Gimlin film uh, in its, it's, 1080p restored version that uh, I think the editor for a National Geographic television channel had done, and this was yeah. given to them yeah. by um, <clears throat> by by the Patterson family. I, I was convinced. I saw this video. I looked at it frame by frame. I saw Patty's anatomy, you know, and they showed me these foot footprint casts from the sighting. And I was like, I got to make a documentary about this. So that's how I got into it. And the first documentary I made was called Sasquatch, um, uh, sorry, The Unwanted Sasquatch. Yeah. Uh, yep. Kind of an odd name. But um, I interviewed Dr. Meldrum for that. And then um, I have re-released that as like a 220, 2020 director's cut with added interview footage from Dr. Meldrum. And then I finished Sasquatch Among Wild Men at the end of last year. And again, <clears throat> I asked Dr. Meldrum to reprise his role as a educated fellow on this subject, uh, you know, from a scientific background. And he fits and, that role quite well, I might yeah. add. <laughs> and I, I was actually going to conferences uh, related to Bigfoot field research. And um, the first one I went to at the time in 2019, uh, there was the, the last one I went to was called Sasquatch Summit. And I had organized myself to meet, interview Shane, David Ellis, and Derek Randalls. But I had seen Shane speak at one other conference before that. And that's when I kind of approached him and said, look, 
um, you know, I'm an independent filmmaker and I really uh, am interested in this subject and I want to expand the story on this subject. And I think you could help. And the research you guys are doing at the Olympic project is phenomenal. Uh, I can't believe you found nest sites and uh, you know, you guys are doing all the right things in terms of trying to identify this creature with scientific methods. So what do you say? Would you sit down with me? He kind of said, yeah, all right. You, here's my number. I don't know if I really want to be on camera yet, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk. And then I said, okay, cool. And, uh, you know, finally at the other conference, these guys sat down with me and, and I got to uh, interview them. So that's how Sasquatch among wild men, wild men came to be. Well, I think that's funny with his response, how you how you <laughs> you classify you characterize that rather, because, you know, I, I listened to an interview where a young lady had met him at a gas station. So I just thought he's got to be a little more approachable than that. If somebody at a gas station asked him to be on a podcast, ah, you know, guys, he, guys, salt of the earth, heart of gold. Good, <laughs> good man. Uh, right. Thanks for letting me bother you, Shane. <laughs> Crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, you know, the whole the whole thing uh, that you touched on about the, the native, the actual tribe that, you know, coined the actual name Sasquatch, uh, turned into Sasquatch. You know, I, I'm glad you touched on that. I, I got Ojibwa in my family, and I know talking to the tribe up here uh, doing some investigative work in a different area, that still came up in conversation for me, and they also have a different uh, word, which escapes me right now. I know I'd written it down. But a lot of the different tribes have different versions and different words for uh, this so-called uh, uh, hominoid, uh, humanoid. Uh, I don't know what to call it. I think it's more of a person than it is anything else. That's just my opinion, and I'm a nobody, but that's really how I feel about it. Um, it's only because and, you're not been gra dragging the ground for a while, okay, Dan? Right. Well, because, because I think the lower part of my body kind of turned into Sasquatch. Once all the hair left up here, it started growing everywhere else. So right, uh, we'll right. leave it at that. Now, um, and, and Darcy, by the way, great, great work. I uh, would love to see some of the UFO stuff uh, that you've got out there, too. Uh, jumping over to Dr. Meldrum, I, uh, you know, I, I've been following you for years. Again, I, I never want to make a person feel bad when I say I've been following you since I was a kid. Uh, but I, I really, I think maybe I feel like a kid on, only up, up here, you know, uh, in my heart and in my mind, I'm 58. And, uh, but I, I, I just remember you being on everything that, um, I wanted to look at that I wanted to take serious. Cause there, there were so many different people out there starting organizations and, and being on documentaries. And I was just grabbing at everything, picking up every book I could get my hand on and, wherever you resonated within that circle is where I tended to follow because as Darcy pointed out, um, I follow scientific method when I investigate the paranormal. And I think that is something everybody should do if they want to call themselves an investigator. That's the only, I think, true and tried way to uh, follow and do real good research and research doesn't mean you've gone over to the Wikipedia or Google Research means you go to all the information outlets, good, bad, and the ugly. You draw from that, and then you, you've got to make you know better and, and more common sense, I guess, uh, uh, answers, I guess, hypothesis. Does that sound right to you, Doctor? Well, yeah, that's, I think, the distinction between um, different motivations that uh, enthusiasts may have. If they 
if they want to contribute to a, uh, a systematic effort to try to demonstrate the reality of, of this phenomenon, no matter what it is, then you, you are obliged to follow such, you know, methodological guidelines that make your experience uh, repeatable. You know, replication is, is critical in order to share that information. There are, are many people I speak with who have <clears throat> personal experiences which may be very real to them, uh, but they are subjective and they don't lend right. themselves to documentation in such a way that they can be conveyed objectively to someone else. You know, I've, I've, I've attempted many times to go out with, with that sort of individual to share in their experience, but unfortunately have not had the gratification of su successfully uh, repeating their experience right. in my presence. And so, so yeah, that's the distinction. I mean, I think I, I'm very keen on the role of citizen science because the nature of this phenomenon is such that uh, these are, 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 in my opinion, very rare, very elusive uh, creatures, and most credible encounters happen purely by happenstance. They're, they're uh, random chance events, and so for someone like me to decide to intentionally, purposefully go out into the woods and collect data systematically is just not very practical. It just has, I mean, I, I still try, and I've had some success. I mean, I've, I've done footprints, heard vocalizations, examined evidence in the field, but uh, but by by far, you know, the the claims to repeated intentional interactions just don't really hold up under under close scrutiny. So the more eyes that are out there, the more the more people recognize that there is a legitimate um, avenue for sharing their information uh, and the more prepared the enthusiast is to to discriminate and document and and uh, uh, report accurately their experiences and collect and preserve data then then the easier my job becomes and the more information we're more reliable information we're able to accumulate and let me add uh he did actually travel out to the site that the Olympic project had found uh, the nest site and you could see right. in the documentary, you know, he was collecting samples and observing and these structures samples, yeah. firsthand. So, you know, he, he does do some really good on boots on the ground research himself alongside other good researchers that have, you know, strong foundations in, in, in collecting the data that, that, you know, the scientific, community would need to prove the existence of this animal or creature. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would point everybody in, in his direction and anybody that works with all of you, uh, all of you here on the show right now, like I said, I, I think you guys are great researchers and you're, you're following up and not just my opinion. I just feel it's the way that it should be done as a guy who comes from law enforcement, uh, corporate security background. I'm now retired. That you know, running these like an investigation at times, uh, as to what Dr. Meldrum was was talking about, is you know having certain parameters put in place when you're looking at evidence, but also understanding a story is always a great story. Uh, it's it's rather <clears throat> difficult to duplicate you know that incident uh, when you go out in the field, even if you're doing you know like a crime investigation. It's the same thing, um, and not saying that you want to get 
uh, lucky and have the crime, you know, take place again in front of you. But, you know, you want certain things to be in place in order to say, well, yes, there's something to this. Uh, and I can take this witness's, you know, account as being very credible. And that's difficult at times, too, because, you know, people get very reared up into certain situations and witnesses do uh, tend to exaggerate things and sometimes forget things, too. So it's it's a very strange dichotomy. Uh, I can only even imagine with this uh, the same way, uh, you know, trying to really put all that into one basket and say, well, here's one that I can take as being very credible. And here's another one that I'm not so sure about. And here's obviously ones that we just we just can't put them in that basket because there's there's too many uh, calls for error, too many false positives going on in Fort Arosta. But I, I loved uh, the research that I saw in that documentary. And I know that you had been doing that for years, you know, with hair samples and, and the footprint being your specialty, uh, Dr. Meldrum. And I, I'm with you. I remember you, I do remember you saying this. So, so if I, if I'm wrong, obviously correct me, but I pretty, pretty sure I heard you say one time, how much more proof did we need? Um, or at least you've emulated that thought. Because I, I'm the guy, maybe it was me that said it in my own head, doctor. I don't know. With this cold going on, it's hard to tell. You know, you have enough you have enough of this NyQuil stuff, and it does all sorts of crazy things to you. But, um, you know, I'm the guy that says, how much more proof do you need? We've had hair sampling. We've had, uh, you know, all the footprint evidence. And obviously being able to spot the phonies now. Um, how much more do we need? It's crazy. It's crazy well, business. What we have so far, I think, rises to the level of, of evidence, of credible evidence. Right. right. But, you know, the ultimate proof, conclusive proof, will only uh, take the form of, of a, a tangible type specimen, a body or a gotcha. diagnostic yeah. part of a body. But short of that, it's, it's the, the, you know, the documentation and the, the, uh, the accumulation and categorization of, of this evidence that's so critical. You know, I, I often point to David, put him on the spot as, as a prime example of this. As far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, but he has no formal training in, in uh, bioacoustic analysis and so forth, but that was something that captivated his interest and he, he educated himself, he, he uh, equipped himself uh, very, uh, effectively you know i know he's talked about participating in in uh, online talk groups with other bioacousticians and comparing notes with people who who do this uh, professionally and avocationally wasn't me <laughs> be, be it bird calls or or whatever but but here's a prime example of a citizen scientist who who uh has uh, carved out a niche and and Quite honestly, he's he's my go-to guy whenever someone brings a recording of an of a vocalization to me, because he's uh, he's accumulated a library of comparative uh, recordings. He can visualize this this audio data uh, in as a you know quantified sonograph that allows us to very objectively and systematically discriminate and identify and differentiate these these uh, uh, wildlife sounds that sometimes can be, uh, you know, yeah. you can, be, can be difficult to differentiate yeah. unless you're extremely experienced. So uh, there's, there's a citizen scientist for you. Yeah, and, and thank you for that segue because uh, he was the person I was getting ready to pick on next. So, um, <laughs> David, <laughs> Mr. Ellis, yeah, um, yeah I, I sat and watched a lot of your, your stuff today, and my wife was sitting with me, uh, and she was just like, 
just like deer in headlights. And she's like, how much more of this are you going to listen to? I'm like, well, quite a bit. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sense being made here. And he's breaking down everything because, you know, I told her, I said, remember, I do the same thing. I, I'm not as involved as you are, uh, David. And I definitely want you to share your experience here in a second. But I, I do some of the same stuff because when we catch EVPs, I've got to go through a lot of that sound and I've got to point out, you know, this is something a mile away or this is something across the street or, you know, I, I got to rule out all the variables before I can say, well, now that's something unknown. I'm definitely hearing a voice or there's a complete sentence. But uh, great work, David. Uh, just fantastic, especially isolating all the all these animals out in nature, especially with owls. People think they know what owls sound like. And being a guy who spent time out in nature here in Michigan, I can tell you people don't have a clue. Hey, hey. Hey, you can't say that about me because I live out in the woods. I know what I'll sound like. I heard some last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that you bring owls up as a possible um, misguided um, conclusion. Uh, I've had owls vocalize so loud that they've blown me out of my camping chair. So, you know, one of the, the first things that people will say is, oh, it was so loud that it couldn't possibly be an owl. Well, <laughs> uh, it was 30 feet in the air, so I'm pretty sure that that was an owl. But anyway, they can sound like uh, monkeys. Uh, the barred owl has maybe 20 or 30 different types of vocalizations, and most people are only familiar with one. Yep. So, um, yeah, the, uh, the whole idea behind uh, bioacoustics is that um, each animal has their own unique signature and they may have several and you may not be familiar with all of them. I certainly am not. And I always leave myself open for, um, you know, somebody saying, well, that's really a coyote, even though I have gone through Macaulay Library of Sound mm -hmm. and, and looked at it and can identify certain outliers that tell me it's not a coyote but you still have to be open to the fact that they may know something that you don't. But uh, what I will tell that person is uh, you've got to do your homework just like myself. You can't make a claim just because it sounds like a coyote to you. You've got to visually prove it to me now because that's the that's where bioacoustics is. It's a, a visual analysis tool. Right. And, and do you think that, you know, uh, some of the more seasoned hunters and outdoorsmen who really know their stuff and trackers are some of the, the best people for you to talk with at times, too, or to be part of this? Because they obviously know the differences sometimes, you know, between these these animals. Yes. So, so have you, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, go I was ahead. just wondering if you want a little bit of history backlog about myself, or do we want to? Yes, just, yes, oh. yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> we got we got new audience members, so they they may not know all your information. Okay, well, I got um, started in the field of Bigfootology, if you can use that as a term. Actually, when I was maybe five or six years old, uh, back in the early fifties, my grandfather had an eighty-acre farm. And he relayed a story to me when I was at around that age, five or six, of uh, seeing a five-foot-tall monkey pop up while he was cutting hay. He was um, cutting hay on the South 40, so to speak, and up pops this, what he says is a five-foot-tall monkey, and it ran on two legs across the field, hopped the fence, and into the woods. 
So since I've been about five or six, I've always had this <laughs> notion that there's monkeys right. in the woods. So, right. I mean, that I guess that's part of my DNA. Um, and then when I was um, 11 years old, I had my own personal experience. I don't want to go into too much detail, but uh, the, the it, it left such a mark on me that um, when we had a library class uh, the following week, um, I was uh, uh, wanting to tell my story of what happened uh, during what we had uh, show and tell. The librarian wanted to know what we wanted to read so she would uh, find out what our interests were. And so we would always tell stories. And from that, she would kind of point directions of uh, books that we might be interested in. So I relayed this story and um, it's, it involves a vocalization, oddly enough. And um, it impressed the librarian enough that she came up to me during class, tapped me on the shoulder and said, David, come with me. I want to talk to you for a minute. So I went with her and then she started asking all kinds of questions about uh, the encounter that I had. And then uh, she said, well, I think I have a book for you. It's an adult book, but I think that it will answer some of your questions. And she said, it's Ivan T. Sanderson's Abominable oh, Snowman Legend Come to Life. Now, my experience was in 1963. This book was originally published in 61. So it had been out for a couple of years. So I just find it interesting that the librarian could uh, kind of deduce what may have happened to me just from my explaining uh, what my encounter was. So, you know, there's lots of folks out there that have had these kinds of encounters, thousands, tens of thousands. So, um, you know, we've got stories uh, now, as Dr. Meldrum says, we have to get beyond the stories we have to document. So um, that really uh, inspired me when I started getting out into the field that I couldn't do just the story. I had to have some sort of representation of what happened. And so that's why I started recording. And I also uh, taught myself how to do um, track casting. So th with those two things, um, I, I felt like I could maybe contribute to what was uh, going on in the Bigfoot world. And oh, I, yeah, I became involved in the Olympic project in 2010, hit it off with Derek real well and, and uh, have stuck with it because we're really of like-mindedness. And I think you'll hear it in Shane's comments as well, that um, we're not trying to prove the existence of Sasquatch, but we are trying to vet evidence that comes our way and um, you know, disprove that it isn't a coyote, that it isn't a cougar, that it isn't a bear. Right, uh, process of elimination, right. Exactly. That, exactly. that more proof, yeah. And I love that because I, I think I set out in paranormal investigating, gentlemen, to I think at first kind of prove to everybody that ghosts are real because of my experiences and things that we've captured. But I, like you, I reached the point now where, you know what, that's really not what I would, I'm, I'm bent on doing. I'm bent on collecting more evidence and clues that are going to, you know, illuminate and lead to uh, more scientific things to to show that obviously there's something happening. But we'd like to we'd like to know a little bit more, you know, a little bit more about what it is and, and maybe its cause. Shane, you have a, an interesting story. You're you're run in. And um, did I read this right that you're from Scotland? Yeah, I'm originally from Scotland, moved to the States in 93, about to San Diego. 
I told Elmer, I said, I, I, I saw him on another podcast and I didn't hear one Scottish accent <laughs> at all. I was really confused because I, I was going to give you my worst Scottish accent when we came on the show, but I, I won't make you suffer through that. <laughs> I appreciate that. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was probably a and probably he'd have to get his butt whooped. And I was like, no, I can't let my buddy do that. Don't yeah, do I don't. I, I, I'm not in any shape to be fighting anybody anymore at my age. I don't heal like <laughs> I used to. Um, so Shane, tell us how, how you round about, you know, virtually head first into this, this thing. And then about your, your experience that you had. Yeah. I mean, real, just roundabout, I uh, grew up in Scotland as a small lad. I, uh, was interested in cryptozoology, especially, you know, uh, cryptids you know, like Nessie and Mokulamembi and stuff like that. And the Yeti, of course, uh, my mom got me interested in that. And I, I grew up very interested in paleontology. I was writing professors in Glasgow and they'd write letters back to me just about the subject matter. And, um, I had the chance to move to the States in 93, out to California, and I'm got sorry. really, yeah, I'm I know. Kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> it could I, be uh, worse, could be Michigan. Yeah. Hey, there's nothing wrong with California. That's where Patty's from. That's right. Yeah, what's wrong with you all? Jeez. I don't know. It was my bad. I, I apologize, Shane. Go ahead. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, from 93 on, you know, I, I was getting my hands on books and, and uh, watching everything I could on the, the Sasquatch phenomena. Uh, it wasn't until about 97 when I got some wheels that I started going up and down California, uh, south, you know, Southern California, like Alpine area where the Zubies are reported yeah. from, uh, San Bernardino Mountains, you know, up in the high deserts and, um, uh, you know, all these different forests, Cleveland National Forest. And then eventually I made up to Yosemite and I thought, man, I'm in heaven up here. And I, I would do the 12, 13 hour drive uh, investigating reports by myself, uh, talking to witnesses and, uh, for years up until about 2006. I really, I talked to a lot of interesting people, but I really never came across anything of interest. You know, nothing I could say that's suspicious. Um, in 2008, I, well, I met my wife in 2006, moved up to Oregon in 2008, thought I was in the Mecca. And once again, was doing a lot of solo stuff, tra traveling around, um, was going out to the coast, uh, the Tillamook area in Oregon, and eventually made it up to Mount Hood, which I fell in love with, the Mount Hood National Forest. In 2011, while out backpacking in a remote area up there in High Lakes with some buddies, uh, just fishing, backpacking, uh, had a, uh, an experience up there that sh totally shifted my life. It made, uh, well, what it did for me was solidify that Sasquatch existed. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it existed. And um, that pushed me forward for the next couple of months to think, you know, in my head that I could prove this. I know where these things are at. I know where at least one right. of them's at. And for months I tried uh, and I really didn't have any results. So then I started shifting my focus and I got to be, you know, I'm up here. I got to contact individuals that are working on this stuff that are like-minded or have the right sense about them that obviously probably know more than I do which yeah. led me to Derek Randall's of the Olympic project. And, um, you know, I've been working with the Olympic project since about 2012. And what I thought, I, you know, in the past, I thought I was actually doing real research, real investigative work. And when I got involved with the Olympic project, I was kind of a, kind of a shocker. I realized at that point that I basically, which is kind of mumbling around in the woods, not really doing anything other than talking to interesting people and bumping into them. But, uh, right. Since then, you know, it, it's my research, personal research and in, in as a whole, I think with the Olympic project, it's just leaps and bounds as a, you know, a citizen scientist. If somebody wants to pursue this in the correct manner, um, that maybe science will at least respect my endeavors and the Olympic project endeavors. And so that's where we're at today is about, you know, collecting as much data, sifting through the data, seeing if we can find patterns of predictability 
And uh, that's where we're, our, our goals are at, and that's where we're moving forward with. Well, you know, the, the thing I love the most about this Olympic project and all the work that you gentlemen are doing is, you know, you have a lot of other groups out there. And again, I'm not going to start a whole section of the program where we throw dispersions out on, on, on other, you know, Bigfoot research things and other people. But the lack of analytics, the lack of real true research that's involved sometimes shocks me. Um, but then it really, it really shouldn't because it goes on in the paranormal field as well. Um, you know, I'm lucky to have a scientist and, and an engineer in my group that, you know, he builds devices according to certain scientific, uh, you know, censures and setups. And, but then we're surprised and, and happily surprised when we get some things that we can put in an analytical research uh, notes and on graphs and charts in order to continue forward to, again, cross-reference all the evidence, all the clues, uh, you know, going from one end of the spectrum to the other and trying to match certain things that are falling in between in order to better project and better to show that we're really doing the actual research now. Now we're not just claiming that we've we've won and looked to see what, what was on the property before or falling along with popular theory or things that are out there that are they're a part of what all, all of us are doing. Um, and I don't know if I'm making any sense in the, in this, this speech here real quick, but um, I'm just happy to hear that analytics is, 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 the, is the key. If you're going to do real research, you've got to have stuff that's recorded, put down on paper, and you got a reference, cross-reference, you know, quadruple reference in order to, and, and you come across some, some of the findings by total accident. When you're looking for one thing, you find something else, right? Am I, or am I wrong? No, really. Wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Thanks, Elmer. It's always good to know my friends got my back, isn't it? Um, (laughs) So we're gonna take a we're gonna take a real quick break, break real quick. Yeah, we're gonna take a real quick break. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening so far. uh, Right here at the I Want to Believe Radio Show, you're listening to us on the Unrestricted Radio. Uh, site. Please do your, uh, us a favor and go download that app, unrestrictedradio.com. Let's not forget some of our friends and sponsors, Henderson Castle, hendersoncastle.com here in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Also, Gun Barrel Coffee, gunbarrelcoffee.com. It is owned and run by veterans. It is roasted by veterans. Proceeds go out to help veterans. Also, Hopefully soon, but I, I know that I support and I'm part of it is Till Valhalla Project. That's 22 a day. That's uh, 22 a day uh, in veterans that we lose uh, to suicide. And uh, it's a very important project. So do yourself a favor. Look up TillValhallaProject.com. We'll be back for more right after this. Take a stand. Take a stand. Take a stand. Like my brother did. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. Like my wife did when she asked the right questions. Like my friend did when she made the call. You stood by us when we were in uniform, so stand by us now. Take a stand for those who served our country. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, the Confidential Veterans Crisis Line is here for you. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press one. Chat at veteranscrisisline.net or text 838-255. This is the Big Dog, and you're listening to Unrestricted Radio.
do yourself a favor and download the unrestricted radio app. Tell them the big dog sent you. Thank you. 
And we're back, and we didn't go anywhere. I always tell everybody we were taking a break, and we'll be back. But we're I'm sitting here looking at all these handsome men uh, in this thing. That I know that may sound Ooh. weird. But just, <laughs> yeah, Dave's looking around. Where? What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, but thanks for joining us again. We've got some great guests. We, we've got Darcy Weir, filmmaker uh, extraordinaire. I, I don't know what other title better than to call that because I loved your documentary. I'm sorry. Maybe I can be in your next one, huh? If you want to do some ghost hunting in Michigan, man, come hit me up. I got some places. Uh, right. Dr. Jeff Meldrum, uh, David Ellis, who uh, is just a genius with the uh, the audio uh, field, uh, I feel. And of course, Shane Corson also has a lot of great information, great things to share and his experiences and his research. Uh, they are members in the Olympic Project with Dr. Meldrum and the select other folks. Uh, but thanks for being on the program. You guys are just, you, you made our week because, again, uh, Elmer uh, and I and Bob were just, I mean, we were over the moon uh, when we heard that uh, you guys were scheduled to come on our show. We couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's it Every, really awesome. Everybody's really quiet. They're, they're, they're like, yep, mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> yep, they're like, yeah, uh-huh, che- yep. Checks go. in the mail, everybody. All right, longer? checks in the mail. How I promise. Longer? How mu- oh, crap. This guy's <laughs> How much talking. longer? Okay. Thank, no, thanks for having some- us. Oh, no, I appreciate it. Uh, I wanted to hit some talking points. I know that, again, we get this list of all these things, and you guys cover so much of it. Again, that's why I love just letting you go off on your own. You kind of carry what it is you really want to discuss. But I had a few things on the side that interested me. Um, I think um, one of the first questions that was on here, but it was one that I wanted to ask too, do all of you feel that there are more than one of the Sasquatch out there. Now, this sounds like a really stupid mundane question, but I've talked to people and they're like, well, there can only be one in certain areas if there is one. And there's no way that they have family groups and, you know, the whole, the whole pseudo skeptic thing that goes on. Uh, What's your feeling on that? Uh, You guys can take turns. Whoever wants to start with that question. Dave. Uh, Well, yeah, I can, I can start. Um, If my field experience is true that I have experienced uh, Sasquatch behavior, the first thing that I noticed in one of the areas that I was going to that seems to be repeated in other areas is that if they are in the area, you will be announced. So if you are uh, announced, that means that there's got to be more than one uh, communicating that to others. And that seemed to be the case where I would have um, wood knocking happening in, happen in one location to be answered by wood knocking in another location. I've heard vocalizations. I've been witness to long vocalizations on one hillside answered by long vocalizations on another hillside. So right. there's there's a, a communication going on uh, amongst a group. There has to be a, a, a group of them. We can argue to the cows come home how big that group is, but um, there is definitely more than one. And um, just from my personal uh, field experience, like I said, if I'm experiencing Sasquatch behavior, there, there seems to be some communal aspects to them. Everybody's rather quiet, okay. That was a they great think- answer. <laughs> well, <laughs> from, the, uh, uh, from, the, from the perspective of the footprints, uh, in in the uh, large collection of examples that, that I have here in the lab, we have everything from a little tiny footprint, which actually comes from David Ellis. And 
there's another one just as small. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering what he was doing. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Trying to get a, find, find the exit from the shell real quick. From Michigan, find his gun. comes yeah. one that's about that same size, but all you know, great uh, gradations all the way up to the largest credible footprint wow. in my collection is 19 inches. We have repeat appearances of individuals that are recognizable as individuals on the basis of their size, proportion, and toe configuration, the distinctive right. quality aspects. It's like a footprint. It's like a fingerprint. Yeah, right. Yeah, in, absolutely. In many ways. And, you know, if, if, we're, if we are uh, in agreement that we're dealing with a biological entity, a biological phenomenon, then it stands to reason that any biological species consists of multiple individuals, a population of, of self-perpetuating individuals. Uh, right. Uh, instead of, you know, as soon as you limit it to one single wretched individual that's roaming the face of the planet, then it's a monster. You know, a, yeah. mo a monster means, a monstrosity means something that's unique and singular, that's un that's extraordinary in that regard. And so uh, it's anything but that, really. Yeah, I can add to that really quick. Um, you know, and I'm sure these guys know this story, but um, leading up to the filming, the now famous film of the Patterson-Gimlin uh, subject, Right. nicknamed Patty, um, many of the railway workers that were working on building this railway through Northern California at that time were reporting um, many different sized tracks crisscrossing going through the soil. And when John Green went out there, uh, he, he flew out there right after they um started reporting this in uh i don't know 1950 something and and that famous bigfoot um you know name started coming out of the united states he flew out there and he was taking pictures of tracks that were i think 16 inches and up to 18 inches in in length and different uh width as well as they were going through the mud and into uh, the forest and, you know, through the, the soil that was alongside of the train track that they were building. And, and I feature some of those photos in the first documentary I did, um, you know, showing the two footprints pretty much like almost beside each other in the soil, meaning that one creature was probably following the other one as they were pacing each other going through the terrain. And uh, that kind of leads us to believe that they travel sometimes together. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many questions in terms of uh, what they are, why they're here and how long they've been, you know, around. Um, those questions I, I try to scratch the surface on in my documentaries and and that's really all you can do when you have like an hour and a half or or so right. to, to demonstrate something to somebody before they get so bored they want to rage quit and turn the tv off right? right um so really what i do is just scratching the surface and what like shane david ellis dr meldrum are doing 
year over year is like bringing out this this being in full flesh, you know, like with all the different research that they're accumulating. Yeah, and that's why I love what you know watching the breakdown from David from your your you know analytics and stuff of the sound. Uh, I was just enthralled. I, again, it's not my wife's cup of tea, but you know that was not meant to that was not meant to offend you, sir. But it was you know it is mine, and and I said I was so fascinated. Uh, I, that led me to think of a question, Doctor Meldrum, as far as uh, travel and that for all of you, of course. But um, when they travel, is there any indication that they try to? hide their numbers let's say if they're in a group are some of the footprints spread out or like Darcy said they're very close to one another where maybe they are trying to hide their numbers is that is that a fair question oh it's a fair question i i don't know that we have any real good examples to uh to suggest that i mean we know we know that some animals do intentionally try to hide their own uh, tracks to uh to avoid betraying their presence but uh, right. In the case of uh, the vast majority of footprint finds attributed to Sasquatch are, are of solitary individuals or what we take to be females. The females are typically a little bit smaller. You know, on average, an adult female, I would suggest, is somewhere between 14 and 15, 15 and a half inches, whereas the males are 16 to 19 inches. But the males are much broader. They have a more uh, robust skeleton, just as as uh, is the case in the uh, human population. So their breadth to length ratios are a little more robust, but frequently, not frequently, because it's not. I mean, I, I say it frequently. More than once is frequently when you're dealing with rare events like this, it seems. Right. But uh, occasionally, uh, those female tracks are found in, in company with um, infants. Yeah. Um, a good friend of mine, a colleague, uh, John Mainzinski, is a wildlife biologist up in uh, in Wyoming. And uh, one of the encounters that he had that he shared with me is a footprint find involved a female with the little ones. And the little one was behaving just as you would expect a little one. It was meandering back and forth across the road. Right. You know, anthill, every toadstool or rotten stump seemed to capture its attention when right. the road got steep boom it converged on mom and disappeared yep. and then once uh, once you were up on top of the crest again and it flattened out boom there's the little little footprints wandering all over the place so examples like that that have been documented we have casts of little ones in the company of, of bigger ones uh suggest that the you know this is real behavior this is uh, typical of uh, well, just about any animal, but uh, very yeah. consistent with with uh, a uh, primate. Yeah, no, <clears throat> pardon me. I was going to mention, you know, up up in my neck of the woods, up here in Washington, uh, it, it literally uh, stone throw away. <clears throat> there have been sightings, uh, especially by loggers, specifically by loggers that have seen what they would call a family unit. It, different size Sasquatch in one group, smaller ones, larger ones. Um, in fall in. In one case, two different loggers over the span of a couple of months saw the same unit outside of one of their logging gates. So it does happen. And you got to ask yourself, right. well, why, if indeed, because it is rather rare to see something like that. I mean, let alone Sasquatch. Uh, like Dr. Meldrum mentioned, you know, you know, a lot of the tracks that are found are mainly males or, or what we would consider maybe a female. But it does happen. So they, I would, I would understand they, they do travel in groups at times, but, you know, 
not so much more in the open, probably in the thicker woods, whereas the males may venture out further for whatever purposes. <clears throat> now, right. to get back to some real quick too, geographically speaking, you know, when it comes to numbers of Sasquatch, obviously there cannot just be one. But if you look at like black bear, you know, in North America, you know, um, you know, getting to like the differences, you know, described from Sasquatch in Washington to say a skunk ape in Florida or what happens in Michigan, what's seen there. If you look at black bear, for example, there's black bears spread out all throughout North America, but a lot of people don't really consider that. Yeah, there may be a black bear in Washington that's a different size compared to one in Florida. And also there's like five different colors of black bear. You know, you got the brown yep. black bear, you got the black black bear, the blue, you know, you name it. So they, depending on the environment and the locations, the geographical locations, they could be uh, smaller or larger in size. And obviously in many cases, different colors, but they're still a black bear. Man, that's 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 reason I asked that question because I I had seen on uh, several podcasts and of course the documentary uh, discussion of numbers and then how you guys bank that and rate that against you know bear populations and state regions and and even even across the world that was going to lead into my next uh, thing for us to discuss uh, was you know the the part of uh, the Asia connection and other things that you guys had put together in the documentary and uh, Dr. Meldrum had spoke to and, and same with vocalizations there, uh, Dave. Uh, I mean, are there, I guess we'll speak on that subject, but I would, I would have Dave followed up at the end with, has he had any vocalizations from other parts of the world that seem very similar or are they completely different? That type of thing at the end of the, the discussion. Uh, I can touch on it briefly now, if you like. Sure. Okay. Um, I have received, uh, through other investigators here in North America, some sounds from Australia. Um, so uh, the Yowie. Uh, the Yowie, seems, yeah. Yeah. Um, there seems to be some vocalizations that have some similar uh, attributes to what we are recording here. Um, you know, the, the grunts, the growls, uh, the, the, the howls, the longer howl, um, it seems to be, um, prevalent if, if I'm actually listening to a Yowie. So the, the interesting thing here is <laughs> I need to become uh, a little bit more familiar with what are the known animals where these recordings happen, um, right. so that I can ferret out the information. But there's uh, quite a few that have some significant um, similarities to uh, what we are recording here in North America. And I do have the, um, I, I guess, the, uh, the luxury of getting recordings sent to me from all over uh, the North America um, because I can compare it to what I'm recording here. And I have several different groupings that I think are significant and it's important to me because when somebody sends me something, listen to this whoop, I want to hear, you know, the five minutes before and the five minutes after and see if there are some other sounds because I found things that I'm following personally that nobody knows about. So. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, in my brain it works in a weird way where I was thinking too, you know, with different uh, regions of the world, uh, would it would it stand to reason, let's say linguistically uh, or sound, you know, audio wise, um, that there may be 
slight differences due to obviously the different areas of the world. You know, if we were to look at humans, let's use humans as as a as the basis, I guess. How we all have different accents, different dialects, wouldn't that stand a reason that that would also be the same for this this primate? Uh, I am seeing that. Yeah, I think was- it, it would make sense. I mean, they take chimpanzees for example. They've identified distinctive cultural units where where there's been enough regionalization that the way they utilize resources, their preferences in dietary. Uh, choices and so forth um, are are quite distinctive, and that even right. includes some of the vocalizations, the situational meanings of the vocalizations that they use. So it it stands to reason. Anytime you have a species that it has a fairly extensive range and potentially one that's circumpacific in distribution, uh, there's going to be isolated uh, regions that we're going are going to have a certain degree of um, uh, not autonomy. What's the word? Idiosyncrasy in their uh, in their behavior and even some of their anatomy. You know, as you pointed right. out, the difference in size. You know, a, a black bear from the you know warm climates of the pine forests of the deep south is going to look very different than a a, uh, a black bear in you know above ten thousand feet in southern Colorado, perhaps just because of the climate and uh, and uh, available resources. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think just to add to what Dr. Meldrum is saying and your question about how things are regionally, uh, from making the documentary, but then going on many different shows, podcasts, radio shows with these gentlemen, um, you know, we've been asked that question quite a bit. And if you look at the reports of what Sasquatch looks like, and then you look at the illustrations or photos that we've seen of the, the creature here in North America, um, and, and then you also compare that to the illustrations of the Yaren and what people describe them looking like. Um, yeah, the Russian, Russian version, yep. No, Yaren is Chinese. <laughs> Chinese, I'm sorry. I, I was thinking of the Russian. Yeah, sorry. The Russians call it, uh, well, they, they have two, basically. They have a shorter version called the Almasty, and then they yeah. just have the, they call, they kind of coined Yeti as their word as well. But, uh, you know, usually Bigfoot is, when they say Yeti, they associate that with something that's larger. Um, right. But, what I was saying with with the Yaren, if you look at the illustrations in the film, uh, it looks you know tall. It looks very similar in in its height and sort of stature uh, to, let's say, a, a Sasquatch. But its facial features look Asian. And you know, I know that that's a very small thing to sort of uh, comment on, but. People do also report from around the world these different supposed relic hominids or wild men that people have had encounters with. They state to see something a little bit different wherever you go. And even in the United States and Canada, the Sasquatch can be reported as looking a little bit different facially. Um, Some people have reported some looking more ape-like, some looking a little bit humanist human like in their facial features right 
And I think Dr. Meldrum had spoken about this before, and he said, you know, in terms of evolution, there is quite certainly evidence of uh, regional adaptation and how that has played a role in in mankind. I mean, you know, uh, a white uh, Caucasian man typically has a longer pointier nose. A Chinese man has a flatter nose. We have the Caucasian eye fold. The Chinese or Japanese man does not have a Caucasian eye fold. They have more of a slit-like eye. And, um, you know, Dr. Meldrum, would you say that this adaptation may be present to some of these creatures internationally, comparatively to what we find in North America? Well, certainly, <clears throat> if, if we look at the human population, many of those uh, uh, facial features that we, uh, even skin color, that we uh, attribute to different ethnicities have probably arisen within the last, you know, perhaps as recently as as tens of thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of years. And so if Sasquatch has been dispersed and, and separated um, <clears throat> across uh, uh, multiple continents, as, as, as suggested, at least Asia and North America, uh, yeah, it's very reasonable. I mean, that, that separation could be itself several hundred thousand years uh, in duration, in which case it could very well be. I mean, just as we see, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, different species now, but the mountain and the lowland gorilla, or at least subspecies, um, but there are distinctive facial features. I mean, to us, they're not so obvious, you know, they all look the same to us, right? But but there's yeah. actually um, subtle differences. There are differences, right. But between a mountain gorilla and a lowland gorilla that uh, have arisen in the, in the time that they have been genetically isolated from one another. So yeah, it's to be expected that there are going to be uh, some differences. But what one of the things, if looking at the other end, down at the feet instead of the face, you know, I had the opportunity to look at a couple of examples. One from the Yaren, where um, the footprints bore striking resemblance to the Sasquatch foot. In fact, if I took those casts and mixed them in with examples from the Patterson-Gimlin film, most people uh, would be no, none the wiser. They, they look so similar, right down right. to the very distinctive pressure ridge that's, that's so um, <clears throat> evident, excuse me, evident in that one cast of Bob Titmus. <clears throat> Pardon me. But I've also had the opportunity to look at some uh, dev casts, D-E-V, the devil, uh, which are from the North Caucasus, and the first footprint evidence, documented footprint evidence, that is, by way of a plaster cast of what is clearly the Sasquatch type of hominid, as opposed to the the Russian almas that, uh, as Darcy pointed out, is of smaller stature and is more than likely, uh, I think, the best mm -hmm. hypothesis at this point. It's a relic form of Neanderthal or or some close ally like Denisovan. Uh, but this dev has a footprint that measures 16 inches and very broad. And again, if I shuffled that, that cast in amongst the rest of those in my collection from North America, you'd be hard pressed to recognize it as, as distinct from, from those other examples. So we're, we're clearly dealing with a, um, 
a uh, population that at one time was contiguous, but now has been uh, uh, separated by the Bering Sea into at least two populations. And as their habitat in Asia ha has been progressively fragmented into isolated uh, uh, pockets, uh, the gene flow between those populations is drastically reduced. And it's, and it's very possible that you have a higher proportion of a certain coat color or uh, a you know, certain uh, configuration of the nostrils or, or who knows what. So yeah, very reasonable. I mean, it makes perfect sense because, you know, that's kind of the example that I was taught in, in, uh, school, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, everything anthropology wise or, or what have you is 100% correct in the teaching of, uh, grade schools and high schools, but I took to it and I loved anthropology and the study of man and cultures. And uh, we, we use that example as to Native Americans and, and uh, the such of having similar features uh, as those from Asia along the same lines that you're, you're discussing right there as the land, you know, the, the land uh, barrier that we had there, the, 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 the straits. So I, to me, it seems like it all kind of, there's so many close connection to, to this. It, it, I don't understand why there's still people who just don't want to, I don't know if it's not listen, but I guess they just don't really uh, maybe care to listen to the connections and maybe some of the facts that I, I think are married to, you know, the great research and the work that all of you are doing in this. Um, I do have a, a strange uh, question as, as far as migration goes. Now, we, you know, do you guys follow along the lines of some of the researchers who feel that they migrate throughout the United States and don't just stick to one area? Or do you think that, do you have a difference of opinion on that? Anyone? I'm, I'm of the opinion that there, there is no evidence to suggest large scale migratory movements or, or routes okay. of people, but, um, but rather that they, uh, due to their omnivorous habits, um, utilize a wide variety of resources that are widely dispersed in the environment. And so they, they, we do have some sort of indirect evidence in, in the form of repeat appearances, documented repeat appearances, but also right. just the patterns of distribution and the pattern and timing of distribution of encounters that suggest that they probably range through a fairly large home range on the order of as much as a thousand square miles. And so, right. uh, which, which makes sense when you see you know, patterns where there, there will be a flap of encounters reported. And then there may, may be no activity reported in that area for years and years as They're, they right. move through uh, perhaps more remote or other areas of their habitat. So that's, I mean, we, we have some examples of, of recognizable individuals in a given geographical area over a period of, of at least oh, 15 to 20 years as an adult. So that suggests a fairly confined area yeah staying that, within their range right right i think that as, as with other animals when the offspring reach maturity then they're frequently forced to disperse by the dominant male see the dominant male won't uh, uh, tolerate a, a young adult male coming into reproductive maturity they'll force them away and so 
you know, Krantz called these rogue males or rogue Sasquatch that were driven from their natal habitat into secondary habitats and so forth, or, or moving through less likely terrain as they're searching out um, their own home or biding their time until they attain full mature growth and can stake out their own habitat and defend it or displace a aging uh, male and, and usurp access to the females that are in that region. Yeah. And that actually brings up, oh, go, sorry, go ahead. Bo. I was just going to say, you know, you know, specifically talking about Washington and, and more specific, like the Olympics, the Olympic mountain range, for example, or Olympic uh, peninsula, you know, you got a lot of microclimates in this area. You got a lot of mountains and you get, you're surrounded by, you know, uh, the coast. Uh, so I, I, I tend to, I tend to believe that Sasquatch is probably more transitory, you know, it can move from ele elevation to elevation, depending on weather and food sources. So you don't right. really need to migrate, you know, uh, you know, cougars, for example, don't migrate, but they do have, you know, like a hundred mile square radius of area that they tra transverse through. Uh, yeah. Sasquatch probably much more than that. Uh, but transitory, where you can move up to the mountain and down the mountain to lowland areas, go to the coast, you know, specifically talking about in the peninsula here in Washington. Um, and you can, you can find all these little microclimates. So you can always be out of the bad weather and into something relatively nice or temperate really quick. So there is no reason, especially for the food abundance and the natural resources in these areas to migrate. You know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. There's no reason for them to, in my opinion, to to migrate. No, thank you for that. Yeah, I love love that explanation. I I I thought that myself. I just wasn't sure I ever really bought into that. Um, you know, and there's a lot of folks who do, but um, I, it seems like there's there's so many reports in different regions. So that's what made sense to me that if there are some in Michigan, they're pretty much staying within their their boundaries. Uh, in the Michigan area, and they may travel north and south or east and west within the Michigan region, but they're not going like, hey, well, I'm now going to go over to Idaho uh, because we're having some adverse weather and the food scarce. I just don't buy that type of thing because not other other animals don't do that. They'll they'll stay within their region. That, like you said, they will they'll move to different areas within that region. I just I don't know. It just didn't make sense to me. So I appreciate that answer. One of the most interesting um, things that the Olympic project that uh, I'm aware of got involved in a project where uh, a witness was having activity, but it wasn't happening all the time. And when Derek got into uh, studying it, he discovered that the pattern was like a two week pattern. They'd be there for two weeks and then they'd be gone for two weeks. So um, there seems to be some, um, method to their the madness of moving up about and i think if you think about it if they were to stay in one location we would know about them by now um, i think that that is part of their success is their ability to make it so uh, or move around so they're not destroying habitat they're not um, making their presence known by being in one location for a lengthy t amount of time that's excellent. Yeah, and it's and it's obvious proof, you know, by the fact that they don't don't destroy their surroundings. They're at one with nature, obviously, by the way they can traverse almost silently uh, and watch you as you guys are out there in the field researching and moving around. And I always get a kick out of some of the shows, or uh, not all. And I'm not trying to make light of of everybody doing the research, but you know, they're setting up trail cams and everything in broad daylight. And I'm thinking, well, you know. 
I, I hate to tell you this, but if I was out there, I, I'm, I'm, I know when you're in my area, I obviously either sense you, smell you or whatever, uh, and I'm going to watch what you're doing. So I'm obviously watching what you're doing as far as your setup. And so now I know what to avoid and, and what not to, you know, and, and I find that interesting that sometimes people don't point that out when they're doing these research uh, videos or these shows, because I just thought, man, you guys are making so much noise and, and moving around so much. I could probably hear you from a mile away, you know? Well, that actually brings up my question is whenever you guys go out there, do you all use like scent covers? Like, do you use like, if it's like rut season for deer, do you all use deer urine? I mean, I'm a hunter, so I, I pretty much know, you know, the ends of out how to get past a deer. I mean, I mean, do you all use that kind of stuff? And do you all actually, it's another question. It's like a two for one deal here. Sorry. Um, do you all think they follow lunar patterns? Like, you know, like deer do like full moon, they're out and about, you know, they're eating, they're having a good time, but like on, you know, a new moon, they're nowhere to be seen. So any guys can pick up on this one, whoever wants to. When I'm when I'm out in the woods, I generally, and I'm a hunter as well. Um, you know, up here in in Washington, especially up in Western Washington, it's constantly wet up here. Um, you know, I do utilize trail cameras, uh, but within a couple of weeks of rain stuff, the scent basically gone. Your human scent will leave in about two weeks in a lot of these areas. So I don't really worry about it too much. Uh, you know, I think that if there is Sasquatch in the area, they probably know you're there. I mean, you're not going right, to hide right. just like the bear or deer. They know you're there, you know, for the most part. Um, so I don't usually use scent stuff. Um, you know, when it comes to cameras, one of the things I've been doing the last, oh, I don't know, six, seven months is really focusing in on creek beds and rivers basins, you know, where there you got moving water. So there's smell and you got sound. So it'll help conceal it. And I don't use straps. I, I find a log or something and I put it right next to the water. So because everything's got to go to water, at least cross water. And I think that's your best chance of getting something on a camera. If you look at historical reports, how many times a Sasquatch or a person has been surprised by either party while they're doing something in the water, whether it's fishing on the human side or Sasquatch is in the water. A lot of people get, you know, surprised by seeing a Sasquatch right. or a Sasquatch. That's right. Yeah. So rivers and creeks are, to me, the best chance right now for getting something on camera. Long shots still, but your best chance of concealment. Um, as far as the moon phases, that's an interesting question. I can't say yes or no, obviously, but working with an individual uh, by the name of Squatcher Metrics, um, he's a, a analysis, a data analysis, and you can find him on Facebook, Instagram. He's doing a lot of data analysis on stuff like that. And he's noticed over the years that the, the waxing crescent and a few other moon phases are seem to be uh, the, that's where you get the most reports or sightings. So um, it's something I know he's looking into. I've been looking into, um, can't say one way or another yet, but there may be something to it. Who knows? I mean, you look at, you know, like as a hunter there, Elmer, um, you do, you know, a lot of hunters do utilize the moon phases, the lunar the phases as to when they're going to go hunt, you know? So, um, up here, I, I don't, not so much the, the moon phases. I'm all about weather. If it's nasty outside, that's when you went out and be hunting. So <laughs> that's great. Great insight. Um, audio wise, uh, shift to David uh, real quick. Um, I remember hearing a gentleman on coast to coast, not too long ago, um, Navy linguistic, uh, guy. And I, I, his name's escaping me. Scott um, Nelson. But, uh, thank you. <laughs> so you know where I'm going. You know where I'm going with this. So you know he he pretty much was talking uh, about having broken down some of the recordings that they have their own language, 
Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Of that? He's uh, been working with Ron Moorhead. Now he's um, a trained crypto linguist and mm -hmm. he is trained to listen. Um, so it's not necessarily what I do bioacoustics, uh, which is I, I have trained myself to see. So it's, it's two different, um, ways of coming at the, sure, getting at the sure. same answer. So yeah, Scott had noticed that he was hearing in, uh, Ron Moorhead's recordings, um, phoneme streams, um, which are vowels and consonants stretched together, which infer speech. So by the very nature of utilizing pho phonemes, consonants and vowels, um, that that is some sort of speech. Uh, he also noticed that uh, that they were um, maybe two to three times faster in their communication signals than we are. And that if you actually start to slow those uh, those audio tapes down, it becomes a little bit more recognizable as speech. But what it, it sounds like is, you know, a, a couple of chimpanzees uh, uh, pant hooting at each other, but uh, there's more involved in it. So, uh, yeah, Scott's a, a, a trained in his particular field. I have to uh, go with what he says. I don't have anything to refute it. I'm just a citizen as doctor. No, I was, I was just I was just interested in your thoughts about it. You know, no refute no refutation needed. Yeah. I just, yeah. Just so was uh, interested in that. Right. And I think Ron has also had several other uh linguistics um speech pathologists look at it and and uh, give him some clues that they're vocalizing out of the normal range of a of a, a human. So um which would uh, suggest that we're dealing with something other than 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 people, right, Doctor Meldrum? I, he's go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna just offer a couple of of caveats just to balance the conversation. I, I don't have a con conclusive opinion on the uh, uh, of uh, Kurt's interpretation as such, but but just a couple of things. One is, you know, when when you describe. Uh, phoneme uh, streams, uh, basically vowels and consonants. Well, right. that's all that any vocalization is made up of: vowels and consonants, two types of sounds. And so, uh, just by default, there's going to be a stream, uh, whether it's language or not. Then goes to another level. And and um, I was raised some a little concern with Kurt that. His phonemes were monosyllabic. They were just a single syllable, you know. Right. And again, that that's just a a single vowel sound, a certain posture of the mouth, interrupted by uh, a punctuation of a of a of a uh, consonant, uh, you know, another position of the tongue or the teeth or the glottis. And so, um, I, I, I'm certainly not expert, but I've um, I've encouraged, I mean, where I started to have problems with the, uh, or concerns about the uh, conclusions that Kurt was was drawing, and I haven't heard him speak for quite, quite a number of years now, so I'm not sure exactly if, if his uh, message or his conclusions have, have altered, but, um, but he was uh, asserting he could recognize it was more than just chimpanzee gibberish. He was actually 
describing pidgin English. Right. As if right. these creatures had picked up somewhere along the way English words like food and and had an association between that word and and what its intention uh, is. And and that I mean that was problematic for me to uh, envision <clears throat> an animal that is as reclusive and has such limited interaction with Homo sapiens, uh, especially English-speaking Homo sapiens, a much you know a, a briefer a period of, of history. How you would pick up? I mean, imagine yourself, even an intelligent being like a, another Homo sapiens, dropped off in a completely foreign country, but you're not able to interact with the locals for more than just brief instances. You can only observe them from a distance. And yet you're going to somehow derive a comprehension of their native yeah. language to where you've yeah. incorporated those words into your own expressions and articulations. You know, I, I was always troubled a little bit by the because I think I thought that it sort of bordered on, if not the paranormal, imbuing Sasquatch with too much humanity. When, uh, for example, uh, some of my <coughs> acquaintances would would assert that these creatures could communicate with them in their language, they could speak Shoshone, and then it really uh, it really struck me uh, um, what the explanation for that might be when Kurt uh, described playing some of these recordings for one of his cryptolinguist colleagues who was Japanese. And the Japanese cryptolinguists immediately recognized what he initially thought were, uh, you know, were phonemes, were were uh, what they call homologs, of in the from the Japanese language. And I thought, aha! See, our ear is so attuned to sounds that are familiar to our to our ear yeah. to our brain that we pick those out initially. And yep. so, where my Shoshone acquaintances were picking out things that sounded like Shoshone. Kurt's picking out things that sound like pidgin English, and the Japanese linguist was hearing Japanese. You know, so I, I, I have encouraged Kurt to submit a, a, a manuscript to uh, uh, be peer-reviewed for publication in the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, the journal that I edit, and and uh, to date he's refused to do that, so declined to do that. Let's put it that way. Right. So I, I, I you know. Uh, do they have language? I don't think a case has been made yet for that. Any, their vocalizations, I, I don't think, are any more complicated or complex than than are are uh, those of the other great apes. Well, you know, give them a little bit more, maybe, but I don't think uh, he's made that case yet. And if you see me grinning, it's uh, I'll, in just a second, Dave. Sorry. Um, if you see me grinning, it's because when we were talk, when David was talking about that, we were going over, I could see Dr. Meldrum. He was kind of moving back and forth in the chair, and he was doing this with his beard. So not, never, never play poker with me, sir, because I think I'll be able to tell when you got something going on. But um, but but I follow along those lines uh, of my thinking on that too when I listen to that program because I was I was asking some of the same questions like how would he know? Well, just like when we think we're spotting faces and when we take photographs in the paranormal, our brain is designed to do the same thing. It's designed sure. to identify something we're familiar with. And I thought that goes the same for us. I think sometimes with language and other things that we you know that we're going to uh, interpret. So. That was interesting. It was interesting uh, point of view. Dave, you had something to add to that. Yeah, I was just going to say there. There is a term. It's called pareidolia, 
Yeah. And um, yep. it's both um, visual and I say audio too, because people, when you play an audio for them, uh, they will hear something and then they can't unhear it. It's right. it's uh, the same way with visual pareidolia. Once you see that face in the cloud, you can't unsee that face in the clouds. So it's the same with, with audio. When you hear something, and you think you know what it is, then uh, if I were to say, no, it's saying something completely different, um, you would think I was crazy. I think there, there was something, that, a rage going around on Facebook too, where, and I can't remember the two things that people were saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Word, yeah. Right. And so. we, we deal with that in EVP work as well, because you know right. I, I, don't like, I don't like to tell, Anybody out in the public or even other investigators, when I have them listen to an, an example of sound that I've captured, and I think there's a voice in there, um, I, I don't want to give them a preconception of what I think I'm hearing. I want right. them to hear it and say, what do you think you're hearing? Now, there have been good, very good uh, chances and occasions that we're hearing the same thing. And then I have a class A where it's quite obvious what's being said because it's very clear. And that's, that's so rare. That's so very rare. But I, I have to train my investigators to not think along those lines, as Dr. Meldrum pointed out, that I got to untrain them from something they're familiar with. The same thing with <laughs> uh, we, we've designed a word called matrixing, which is, is very same thing with vi visual uh, as well. And it's like I've, I've got to have you understand that you got to look at things neutrally. You've got to debunk them first, uh, finding the regular explanation and put all that other thought process into play before you start making any kind of assumption. So I, I just, I caution on the side of that because I don't like to offer up any absolutes in anything I work in at all uh, because I don't, I don't know. I can give you my best example of what I've collected as far as facts and clues. And, uh, but you, you gentlemen with this project and, and Darcy, were you covering this in the, in the film? Uh, you did that extraordinarily well. And, uh, I, I think uh, talking about, you know, the pseudo skepticism that's involved in this too should be a little bit of a discussion. As I said, you've got a lot of people who are just stuck on this one frame of scientific. Uh, Dr. Meldrum, you talked about it uh, in, in another podcast where, you know, the thinking is, is like, well, it, it, one thing can only happen one way and it follows one stream. And you're like, well, absolutely not. We've kind of, can you touch on that a little bit? Well, I'm not sure the example you're referring to, but uh, I, I've often said that, uh, you know, nature, uh, natural selection is extremely um, uh, capable of, of solving problems from different starting points with very similar right. solutions. Right. And That's so, it. Yep. Uh, convergent evolution is, is rampant. So when, you know, for example, People point to the our lack of a big toe or our bipedalism as as distinctive qualities that are only exhibited by humans or or immediate human ancestors and and in reality we we uh, have repeatedly had examples of other great apes. Uh, uh, there was one just recently, Danubius, a new genus that shows remarkable uh, aspects of the morphology of its pelvis and, and uh, spine and lower limbs that suggests that it was utilizing upright postures. It still was spending a lot of time in the trees and that upright posture was advantageous actually um, in uh, climbing and hanging below uh, supports and so forth. But it's not a hominid. It's not a member of our clade since the divergence from 
the last common ancestor with other great apes. And so it's a prime example of where evolution uh, occurs convergently. And so the point being Sasquatch, another biped, needn't be differentially closer to humans than to other apes on the basis of that characteristic alone. It could have evolved under similar environmental conditions in Asia, for example, while the early hominins were occurring, uh, were first evolving in Africa or Asia Minor, uh, Greece and Turkey and that region, the Balkan region. So yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, there was, uh, it, I, I find those examples really quite stunning and interesting because it right. shows that it isn't just a random process, that natural selection is a very guided, uh, channeled process. You know, one of the prime examples is when you, when you assemble an array in all the various niches of marsupials from Australia and then line up the very distantly related mammals, placental mammals, say from North America. And there's a placental uh, marsupial wolf and a placental wolf. Uh, there's a cat-like, feline-like creature that, that has a pouch. You know, all of these, in other words, in Australia, evolved from a little thing that looked like an opossum. Uh, and uh, and yet they have radiated in this remarkably parallel way, overlapping right. way, on these two separate continents to fill. You know, so you've got diggers, and you've got gliders, and you've got jumpers, and you've got you know carnivores and runners. Uh, pardon? Yeah, runners like wolves. Runners. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I say, that certainly doesn't describe me. I, I only run if something's on fire or I'm being shot at. That's where I'm at at this point in my age. But no, go ahead, Darcy. You're making a good point. Well, no, I, I was just going to add, like, uh, you know, pareidolia was mentioned before. And, like, we have right. to, when we look at all the evidence of a supposed creature like Bigfoot or Sasquatch or the Yaren or the Dev existing around the world, we just have to look at um, the best evidence to prove that it exists, you know? And um, I think there is pareidolia that does come into play, but pareidolia can also be used as a, a skeptic's debunker tool, you know? Um, and it can, it can hurt uh, this research because somebody could just come, up, come along and pareidolia right back to where you came from, right? They could say pareidolia, 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 case closed pareidolia. So that's the real problem we got to be careful of. Uh, we got to kind of stay somewhere in the center. The other day or other week, I sent uh, some kind of um, audio video to be analyzed by Mr. David Ellis. Uh, and he you know, I pushed him, said, hey, can you check this out? This guy's contacted me on Facebook and is really interested in getting to the bottom of whether he captured some kind of vocalization by possible Sasquatch. And uh, a couple days went by, a guy was still pestering me. I followed up. Dave did a little analysis. I linked us all together via email. Dave said, well, sounds like a chicken. And there are evidence, you know, there are some recordings I've received in the past that sounds like this is a chicken. And sometimes that's what they, they have some kind of vocal range where they can make these sounds. 
Now, I think the audio was also distorted by other things that were going on that night in the recording. It was a video, so it, it had, uh, you know, it was a video that was on YouTube and uh, this gentleman was upset with that conclusion and, you know, kind of uh, replied back, well, it can't be a chicken. It's It's gotta be a Bigfoot or something like that. And uh, I don't know, but I would say that David Ellis has a library of uh, audio recordings that is in the hundreds, uh, maybe if not bordering a thousand from across North America. And I would say based on his research he's done throughout the years, I'm sure he's got a bit more experience with it. So I trust him in his conclusions. And um, I don't think that was, I think that it wasn't pareidolia, it was just a chicken. Yeah, you can't make everybody happy. And, and it must have been from West Virginia because it sounds like chicken squash to me. <laughs> Anything, uh, Elmer? Uh, no, no comment, uh, Elmer. All right. No, I'm sorry, you know, guys. To, I gotta, only in KFC. Only in KFC. I got to keep it light. I'm sorry. Uh, to, to, to be fair with the witness, uh, they, um, I don't think that they really looked at the spectrogram uh, that well. And they were basing their opinion on what they heard. They knew it wasn't a coyote, uh, so that they defaulted. It had to be a Sasquatch if it wasn't right. a coyote. And the other uh, aspect of it is I have no concept of how loud that thing was vocalizing, um, which uh, can, as uh, including a, a chicken, a chicken can vocalize pretty damn loud oh, and yeah. to the point where they're um, – one would wonder what was able to make that sound. Um, but the visualization, it was the spectrogram that tipped me off to this. Um, somebody can prove me wrong, but that's the the, the basis of the bioacoustics. We have uh, some point that we can argue over now. <laughs> we can throw what we hear out the window and let's just focus on what the visual says. Yeah, yeah. So, debate debate with with logic and facts uh, is not a dirty thing. It's not a terrible no, thing at all. And no, I, no. I get into that a lot on my end too, uh, because we have people send me photographs all the time of, hey, look at all the orbs, see all the ghosts in the cemetery, and I'm just like, ah, okay, I got a series of questions, and I and I, <laughs> I'm the same way, and I burst people's bubble, and then I get, oh, I hate you, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, then why did you ask if you didn't want to hear yeah. you know, the, the first logical answer based on my experience as a, as a photographer and, and an investigator? So, and other times I'm happy to tell them, look, I, I, you fit all the criteria with the questions, and I've now been able to visit you at the place, take other photographs, and I'm convinced it's, at this point it's it's unexplained. That's all I can can say. But I've I've gone through some of that as well, Darcy. So and you too, David. So all of you, I'm sure, have gone through this, where you've had people sending you things, and then you have to kind of nicely put them put them, I guess, in a place and say, look, here's here's what I've come up with, and uh, that's all I can say. Everybody yeah. been through that? Oh yeah. For sure. 
Repeatedly. Okay, I got a story to tell you guys. So, oh God. <laughs> it up to, no, 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 it's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. I promise. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, this is not a power pole story. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. It's not, not, no, we ain't talking about that right now. Okay. That's something else we found in the woods. Um, so, anyway, a few years ago, like this might have been maybe 10 years ago, I was actually, you know, I live in West Virginia. We know woods, woods, and more woods. So, we had some fruit that was inside and we decided, you know, we're going to throw it outside for the deer and whatnot, you know. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to tell you all this story. So anyway, so I'm listening, like we threw the, you know, stuff outside and in the holler, there was like a lot of weird stuff was going on. There was dogs barking and howling, you know, and stuff. And our dog was carrying on one night and I was just being funny because we all know how I am. So I was like, told my wife, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can get a wood knocking. So <laughs> I didn't expect this to ever happen. So, you know, I, I grabbed a big, you know, baseball bat and I'm hitting the tree trying to make it ring and I'm doing it. And she was like, you're going to be, you're going to laugh whenever you get, you know, get something back. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try for a couple of days, see what happens. Well, lo and behold, you know, I threw some more fruit outside because, you know, it was summertime and it was hot. So, you know how things decay quick. So I'm throwing it outside. I'm like, I'm going to try it again. So I do it. And lo and behold, guess what? I got an answer back. Now, I was like, nah, you know, da, 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 da. And I'm really good friends with Lauren Coleman. I sent him a message and he was like, why don't you do a little bit of research in that real quick and kind of find out, like, maybe about a half mile up the road somebody actually made a police report like two weeks ago about seeing a bigfoot on top of a like you know on top of the hill and i was like oh bull you know so next day comes around my wife runs outside she goes you need to listen i said what every time i come home it had i guess it knew whenever i came home knew my car sound knew you know just like an animal would it's like my cat knows whenever i come up the hill it you know it started wood knocking like it was wanting something to eat uh, and my question is have you all ever actually tried to like bait it with fruit or any kind of things like that with the trail cams and i mean obviously you know deer and other animals are going to come by and eat it but has there any been any instances where you know it was baited and actually had some kind of evidence that it took it Go ahead, Dave. Um, I was working with a witness uh, in Grace Harbor that I advised not to do baiting, not to put food out, but um, eventually he did anyway. And he left a quarter, uh, quartered watermelon, one of those that's only about uh, half a bowling ball size. It's, it's the smaller kind. And uh, he did that on about a Wednesday and I came down on a Saturday and we went to that location. Well, every animal in the woods had got into that, <laughs> that, that bait pile. Um, but it appeared that the watermelon hadn't been touched and we walked away. But as I started to walk away, there was something in my mental picture that said, no, go back and look. And I went back and I looked. And in the watermelon rind was a clear depression of a 
of a, a thumbprint that was in the oh, red wow. part of the watermelon. So I put my thumb in it and I and I grabbed grabbed it up um, the way that it it appeared that it had been handled and brought it up to my mouth. And then I noticed that there in the rind were two depressions, like two front teeth. And then oh, wow. I turned it over and on the backside were canine incisors bitten into the to the back of the the watermelon so i had uh, my witness cast that and i do have a cast of this dr Meldrum. <laughs> um but you can see the two front teeth in, uh -huh. in in the rind so i don't know if that's evidence but there's somebody either human or otherwise um with very large teeth and needed dental work <laughs> um Took a bite into that watermelon. So. I don't mean to laugh. I was, that just makes me think if I put out free food, then I got that side of my family that I never <laughs> want to see at holidays. They show up, they get it's free food, and then you probably see bad dental work and all of the uh, traces of food. <laughs> I hope none of them watch this show. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, he's not. I'm, he's I'm, not. I, no, no, I'm not. glad you asked that because I, I uh, you know, like Shane, uh, uh, have you ever tried baiting or i mean what's your position on that you know early early on when i started doing chill camera work um you know it's kind of frowned upon in general you know uh, right. especially in certain states you know because they'll call it baiting and you know you can say sasquatch and go no you're bear baiting or something of that nature so, right right and, and and i i don't i don't do it now um i i think you're you know i don't want to uh make something um basically you know like you said with the the wood knocks there you know hey feed me i don't want a bear coming back and back and back and you know you eventually kind of have some a bit of a pest i mean that's why we have all these trouble with black bears you know especially like yosemite valley for example they have black bears everywhere down there getting people's trash cars and stuff because they know where to find the food and it become a nuisance and then they have to be dealt with and oh, so God. that's the main oh, reason that's where they're the worst yeah and so i mean up here uh you know we got a lot of black bear we got a lot of black-tailed deer and we got all the other usual suspects and uh, i i get them on camera on a regular basis so i try to i try not to to keep getting them on camera or keep them coming back to one location so no i i, I tend to i don't do that and uh i you know i don't like leaving a whole lot of fruit out there in general so I had seen other people who do YouTube. Everybody's doing a YouTube. Everybody's got a show. Everybody's doing, you know, same in ghost, the ghost field too. I'd seen where uh, quite a few people uh, were doing that, leaving out apples and things on logs. And uh, I'd seen some footage that apparently showed a hand. Again, I, I don't, it's hard to distinguish out there anymore what's kind of real and what's not, uh, unfortunately. But I would be, be along the lines with you guys that I would not look at baiting anything. Uh, you just don't know. Uh, that leads me into the next question I had as far as baiting goes, like the temperament, uh, you know, of these, these beings, the, this, uh, animal, this primate, I, I don't really know what I want to call it, but I'm going to say being okay. Cause it's, it's a living being. Uh, what is, what is your overall opinions, gentlemen, of the temperament of the thing? Is, is it something to be feared? Are they as docile as a lot of people want us to think, or should we, you know, I myself, if I'm going out on a research at one of these, which we're supposed to go on one this summer, uh, I'm ha my gun's going to be with me. I'm sorry, I'm wearing a gun. If I'm coming up against something that's eight, nine foot tall, I don't know what if he's having a bad day or not. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Melvin. Well, I was just going to say, 
it's it's prudent to give any animal of that size and strength the uh, the proper respect and deference that it deserves. And so, right. sure, you should uh, you should be cautious. Um, the vast majority of encounters seem to be remarkably mundane, um, but then those are the ones where the witness returns home to tell the story. Right. <laughs> right. I used to always uh, um, uh, emphasize that uh, there was a dramatization on a documentary where a hiker uh, was confronted by a Sasquatch. Um, it made some threatening gestures, you know, the hair standing up and he bolted straight down the slope off the trail with the Sasquatch reportedly in hot pursuit. But when he tripped and did a face plant, the Sasquatch very courteously stopped and waited for him to pick himself up and dust himself off before resuming the chase. So he, <laughs> right. Clearly a, a block. <laughs> That's so amazing. Chasing him away, maybe from a food source. I mean, we just had a, a grizzly bear had to be, um, uh, uh, you know, shot and killed. Uh, he attacked and mauled a, a gentleman uh, just not far from here at Island Park, uh, just, just shy of, Yellowstone, and then the investigators went out to, and, and that man succumbed to his wounds a couple days later. And the investigators went out. They were confronted by the same bear, which charged them. They had to dispatch it, and then discovered just a short distance away a moose carcass that it was guarding. Oh, so, yeah. a food item, a mate, offspring, any number of reasons, or it's just you know, like you said, a bad day or a bad apple. There's always yeah your 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 visual the visualization you gave me with that story yeah. was uh yeah I could just see him standing there and looking at his his squatch watch yeah. all right I'll, I'll well, wait a minute while well, you get back I don't have all day but it's having yeah. having said that though I always have to remember and I and I uh, uh, I think it's again prudent to uh, acknowledge that the traditions the native traditions uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest and even the Southwest um uh, repeat certain themes abduction of women sometimes right. even men hunt, you know warriors or hunters go missing and frequently the abduction of children so the one of the names here locally is the soavitsa the eater of children we've got the tsonaqua that's characterized as the cannibal giant who has these big oversized hands with which she scoops up wayward children and dumps them in her her pack and takes them home for dinner not as the guest, but as the main course. You know, here, here's a funny story. I was invited by my uh, um, my granddaughter was in kindergarten at the time, and so she, of course, was telling about that's on on uh, some occasion what her grandpa does. And so I, I got an invitation to make a presentation to their their class the next time I was in Boise, and and it was going great. I had all these visual aids, you know, skulls and and foot skeletons and bigfoot casts and all kinds of pictures and placards and whatnot. And, we're going along great until the uh, teacher's aide asks this very question that you asked. And of course, I immediately launch into my, <laughs> my little expose. And uh, pretty soon I'm talking about these cannibal giants that eat these naughty children. And and then suddenly <laughs> remembered where I was. And I turned and yeah, looked oops. and here's, here are all these kindergartners with their <laughs> mouths agape and eyes about this big. And thankfully, the, uh, the teacher was very adroit and she stepped in. Oh, but these are just stories. There's a very, I said, oh, yeah, like Hansel and Gretel, you know, they're just very different. <laughs> so uh, it was funny because I got the stack of uh, thank you notes from the class. And uh, dear Dr. Meldrum, thank you for, uh, for visiting our class. I learned that 
dot, dot, dot. And I'm telling you, better than half of them uh, said that you have to be really careful in the woods so Sasquatch doesn't eat you. <laughs> the, north, the Northwest version of the Krampus. There you go. That's right. Thankfully, <laughs> no, no calls from parents on that occasion. Oh, so. my goodness. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> Wait a but minute. You he said that occasion. <laughs> yeah, on occasion. Yeah. yeah. Um, that that led into another question I had, which was the Native American thing. You kind of touched on it. You know, they they had talked about that, and uh, we won't go into that too deeply. Um, the other question I have, which is really strange, was how does the Park Service and the park rangers themselves how how are they about this this type of thing? I mean, are they are they silent like they are with like some of the disappearance things that happen, or or do you hear from some rangers on occasion? I I just did a uh, an interview with uh, a park ranger for the uh, Salt Fork Park in Ohio, and uh, it was actually an interesting occasion when he first contacted me because you know I've I've uh, spoken at that event that uh, on a couple of occasions and and of course as everyone converges on the park there seems to be a uh, a flap of uh, footprint finds and and bumps in the night and so forth and I I actually asked him I put him on the spot and I said is there any truth to the rumors that that the uh, lodge staff maybe salts the mine a little bit plants a little evidence to to up the excitement for the upcoming event and he actually did some uh, made some uh, inquiries to some of his contacts at the lodge and and assured me that to best of his knowledge that wasn't the case but he has produced a series of webinars and podcasts on a variety of natural history topics but has done several on bigfoot and uh, they have been well what did he say he did his first webinar then it was about sasquatch instead of salamanders he said salamanders got about 150 hits sasquatch got 40,000 <laughs> so so his his administrators, his supervisor says, "You keep doing those podcasts; those are great." So he's done a whole series on Sasquatch now. They're very popular. Yeah, yeah. we're okay with the numbers. Keep on going. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I just feel bad about the salamander. I mean, dang, that's a pretty yeah. cool animal too. You know? Yeah, they're cool. Yeah. yeah, but but in general, you know, real quick, you know, there's. In fact, this nest site we're working on, we're working with the tim, uh, you know, timber company. You know, a timber company all by itself. And then you have areas like the Ho River. Uh, I know there's a uh, park attendant up there that actually has a map on his wall of all. It's so many days since a Sasquatch sighting, you know, uh. and he keeps it updated. Yeah. yeah. He, and um, uh, when I worked down on the Oregon coast in the Tillamook area doing some investigation stuff, investigative work out there, there was one park ranger that would always give us updates if he heard anything. Uh, Mount Hood, up uh, uh, Ripplebrook Ranger Station, there was a a lady that worked at that ranger station who had a, a book full of reports that she had kept. Yeah. Now it's not, I don't think it's widely spoken about in those circles, like, you know, especially the higher the pay grade, the less you, you hear about it only because it's right. frowned upon, but there's right. a lot right. of talk and they do actually share a lot of information. Um, and, and a lot of them you'd be shocked uh, that are maybe not had encounter experience, but actually kind of take it serious or at least have an interest in it. So there, there is some open dialogue there within uh, these groups. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, Dr. Meldrum, don't you have a story about John Mayanzinski just to talk about the other aspect uh, of, uh, of of government? Oh, sure. I don't think that there's a conspiracy, so to speak, but there may be certain you, you individuals. Beat me to that have, question. 
Yeah, exactly. Cer certain individuals um, for uh, a variety of reasons, and it can be, uh, you know, just personal ego. They're they're concerned about their reputation, right. their credibility, or they are very sensitive to uh, any perception of the misuse of public funds. In other words, someone uh, you know writes a letter to the editor and complains that the that the fishing game of the park service is using tax dollars to chase Bigfoot. There was a right. an incident down in New Mexico. I was invited to speak at a two day seminar that was um, organized by the executive director of the University of New Mexico at Gallup, the Gallup campus. And he was a cultural anthropologist by training, very interested, very connected with the Navajo Nation, uh, and and was was looking into the tribal beliefs and traditions and so forth. So we spoke, and anyway, but to make a long story short, a ne'er do well um, politician and an unscrupulous journalist got wind of this and and uh, made a salacious article about it, and then the the legislator introduced a bill into committee that would prohibit the public use or the use of public funds to search for unicorns, leprechauns, fairies, or Sasquatch. Seriously. And thankfully the committee chair squashed it, didn't make it out of committee onto the floor, but the, uh, the, uh, the fellow, the anthropologist, the executive director got hauled in, before the university president, and even uh, even the governor made a public statement, I think, and eventually it forced him out of his position uh, because of it. So it it can be, you know, the the uh, the fallout can be very real. But on the other hand, and on a more positive note, John might. And so so uh, I think uh, I got sidetracked there. Um, John's experience was the 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 former there was a new supervisor who called in these guys that were doing some research the the previous supervisor because of the flap of, of events he said well if there's somebody running around in a fursuit i want him found before he's shot by somebody right because people were turning up asking at the office where where are the bigfoot sightings you know people with high powered rifles and he said if there really is a 800 pound gorilla running around the woods uh, and it poses any threat to the people within my jurisdiction, I want to know. So he told John and this other ranger to follow up, to do some uh, detective work, which they did. And, and it produced footprints, it produced stories, it produced hair samples that couldn't be attributed to any wildlife. They sent it to the FBI at one time, the FBI sent it back and said, this is a primate hair, it's not human, why, why, why would we be interested in it? Send it to an anthropologist, they said. And but but when the second guy comes in, he calls them in and said, one word of this to the public from here on out, and all three of you are fired. Now, the positive side is John and I, years back, undertook to try to establish some lines of communication and networking with the federal and state agencies. And so we put together a packet which had a copy of my book. It had a DVD of the Nat Geo special that he and I were featured in showing some of our field work. It had our CVs and our uh, business cards and some reprints of papers and a footprint cast. And we shipped those out to every office, district or regional office of the Forest Service, the Game and Fish, 
uh, state game and fish and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife in Western Wyoming. And then we took about a three or four day um, uh, stint and he and I took a road trip and just popped in and visited each and every office in person. And not once were we turned away. In fact, in some instances, they, they turned the closed sign over on the door and the entire office staff and all of the rangers and whatnot that were in there came in and sat down and listened to us <laughs> talk about this. You know, That's we cool. Rolled, rolled out a big map of Western Wyoming with all of the sites that, uh, that uh, John has investigated. And it was really great. As a result of that, um, we had a, a report two weeks after one of our visits and one of the rangers reported that two of his uh, seasonal employees, his backcountry ATV, uh, it was a married couple. He was a very experienced uh, wildlife agent. He was in law enforcement, wildlife law enforcement in Florida. And then when he retired, they became snowbirds going back and forth, you know, seasonally. And during the summers, they would uh, ride ATVs all across the backcountry there in the southern end of the Wind River Range, found a line of some of the best 16 inch tracks I've ever seen. He, he didn't find it personally. He investigated, there was a report at some seasonal cabins that something was peeking in their windows at night. Oh geez. When they showed up, sure enough, here were these 16 inch tracks. And it was, uh, it was stunning. When we got the phone call, the guy that the phone message, I, which I missed, uh, the call, he said, uh, he said, did you guys have something to do? With this? <clears throat> this is awfully coincidental, but, he said, after our visit, he said, I had this ranger come in and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So John was over investigated. It was really quite astounding. So good relationship, good communication, lots of interest, no effort to suppress. There was some skepticism, good. But, good. but for the most part, open, oh, open-minded to the point that, that the, uh, um, uh, they would train their trail crews. They had invited John in to give a little short workshop to train their seasonal trail crews in identifying tracks and how to best photograph and how to make a plaster cast of this evidence. And so that was uh, almost an annual event for, for three or four years, I believe. And uh, they were very, very open-minded about it. That's that's good to hear, at least on that end, end of that spectrum. And yeah. Darcy, did you come up against any of that when you were looking to interview people or talk to some folks about this experience? Did you get some some pushback? Um, you know, I, I, I uh, you're familiar with Michelle. She's yes. connected us to do this show. And Michelle does a lot of the uh, she helps book people that are interested in interviewing me and, and these other guys. Um, but I worked with, uh, a PR agency, just a typical Hollywood PR agency, and they just don't even know what to do with this. I mean, they referred it to, they referred, they sent the film around to all these typical PR, uh, you know, magazine, uh, critics and film critics. And I got on a few of them. Uh, one of these guys, his name is like, Fartman hero or something like that. Uh, you know, he does, a some kind of, um, celebrity slash pop culture, uh, show. And he does it in the same white t-shirt. Uh, you know, looks a bit like a slob. I, I wasn't very <laughs> happy being on his right. show because 
he basically wanted to prove that Shaquille O'Neal could be out there because Shaquille O'Neal has, you know, 18 inch tracks. Uh, and I said, wow, if it's Shaquille O'Neal, he's, he's been a busy guy in the past, you know, thousand years that we can record, go back and record these beings being seen by, um, you know, Native Americans, Chinese, and uh, seeing Yaren and so on and so forth. Uh, he also has longevity in his genes, so good for him, you know, but... Um, <laughs> That's crazy. I, I think it's really, unfortunately, this subject is mostly attractive to the folks that are interested in UFOs and the folks that are interested in the paranormal. Right, and, and right. you know, in between that are really hardcore cryptid uh, researchers. Some people don't believe in UFOs, don't believe in uh, ghosts, and they do believe in Sasquatch because maybe they had a experience themselves or they came across some material that was extremely um, convincing to them, you know, logically. Um, I fall into the... I fall into the in-between and UFOs. I don't usually believe in ghosts, but, um, you know, that's just me. And, but I would never, you know, um, you know, I'm on your show and I respect that you are a field researcher in that field and you've amassed some evidence that could prove something's going on here. You know, I just haven't looked into it myself and I wouldn't want to um, embarrass or ridicule somebody who has experiences or has information in that field. And I, I feel like, unfortunately, with Jeff Meldrum's background and um, academia, you know, the, the mainstream, in in other words, really does not want to acknowledge this. Does does not want to equate real sightings or uh, real experiences to do with a real creature. They want to say, you know, I, I, I watch, I have to watch everything that's out there in the wild, so to speak, uh, when it comes to documentaries or fiction. And I watched um, the Duplass Brothers new documentary series called Sasquatch that's on Hulu. Yeah. And they devote for the first two episodes, and Mr. Dr. Meldrum, you were in that. Uh, they mm -hmm. devote in the first two episodes of that series probably about five to ten minutes covering Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And um, they interview Bob Gimlin, for example, and, and they go over the Patterson-Gimlin footage. And that's pretty much all they do, and then the rest of the series is about a murder mystery. Uh, a real, a true crime. None of it has to do with Sasquatch other than um, this Northern California area, which which people have dubbed as Murder Mountain, um, has had some foreign nationals uh, from Mexico uh, turn up dead and uh, people blamed it on Sasquatch. And, and that's as far as it goes is, you know, and, and the, the series starts off with a guy saying, you know, monsters don't exist. Uh, they just are fabrications of our mind 
uh, humans like imagination exists and we equate our, you know, the most vicious tales and the most disturbing things about our own selves with monsters. Um, and, and we try to prove those monsters to exist because we can't like fathom that humans are capable of doing this, which is kind of irresponsible, uh, in my very opinion, much so. Because my opinion you, too, very much so. If you if the Duplass brothers did enough research, uh, which is not a lot, you know, you just basically have to look, read a few books, or watch a few documentaries on this subject, or you know, go to the bfro.net or the Olympic Project website. You'll see that there's sightings all around North America that have been dating back before the word Sasquatch or even Bigfoot got coined. And it's like, are you going to say that these are all just monster stories or when people go missing, people are, are kidnapped or, um, you know, people see something and, and something is left behind, there's trace evidence. Well, that's just some fabrication of somebody's mind. It's, it's aggravating. No, I pre appreciate you sharing that. And I, we were worried about that a little bit on, on our program when you guys were coming on. I, I got to be honest about that because we thought, well, I, the last thing I want these gentlemen to feel is that they're just coming on another paranormal podcast and we're just going to ask the same old questions or, you know, who knows, who knows what was going to happen. Um, we have a very deep vested interest in, in this subject. Uh, Bob, very much so. Bob had an experience. He's not with us to, today in the show. Um, Bob had an experience, which was in the Weird Michigan book uh, by uh, Linda Godfrey uh, that she had produced. And uh, that happened on Silver uh, Lake Road here, not even miles from where I live and where Bob lived. And then a few years after that, I had two experiences where I'm not quite sure what I witnessed either. And uh, we, we take it serious. So I'm, I'm really into the cryptid thing. If I, by any means, as an apology to you gentlemen, if I didn't come up with names or certain things, uh, Elmer knows I suffered an aneurysm about four years ago. So some of my memory recall sometimes is really hazy. Uh, so that's why I got a lot of notes and things in front of me sometimes as a reminder. But I wanted to make sure uh, Darcy and, and Dr. and David and and Shane, that we showed you guys very much love and respect because we we believe in that. I believe in this, and I've had experiences, and um, I wanted to do you justice by having you guys on the program. I definitely wanted you to talk about, and we have a few more minutes, but to talk about what it is you want to talk about. You know, the the there's no time restriction on me, uh, but you know, I wanted you guys to bring up whatever it is you feel you'd like to talk about on the program. So I just, that's my way of saying thank you. And you definitely weren't going to come across, you know, the fat man and little West Virginia guy show where we were going to wear white t-shirts and be sloppy. We're, we're, we just, we wear dark shirts and we're sloppy. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. I, I had no doubt this was going to be a good show. And uh, yeah, it's like, it, I mean, I, I feel comfortable on a paranormal show i feel comfortable on a ufo show a, a cryptid show i think we all do at this point especially the amount of them that we've appeared on but uh i think the important thing to remember about folks that listen to this type of stuff is that they're not closed to these types of ideas and right. unfortunately 
a lot of mainstream uh, academia and, and, and just mainstream journalism is completely closed to this stuff. They think it's ridiculous. Okay, let's now report about sports, politics, um, you know, anything else that's acceptable and mainstream. See you later. I was going to echo Darcy's uh, uh, comment uh, with a, a personal experience that just sort of encapsulates a lot. But when my book, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, came out, when it was published, the uh, publishers informed me that they'd sent out over 200 copies to uh, for, for reviews and uh, to a, a list of prospective reviewers, various literary outlets and so forth. They had me provide right, right. a whole list of... Uh, of science publications and journals that do have book reviews. And uh, to this day, there's been, you know, you can count on one hand the number of professional um, uh, essay style reviews of my book. Because like Darcy said, they just didn't know what to do with it. Right. Uh, a serious book about a ridiculous outlandish <sighs> claim that there might be <laughs> a relic hominoid on this continent you just you know how to treat it and and even the, the reviews that were published um, uh, were were very very disappointing in in their superficiality and lack of uh, appreciation of, of what what was contained within the book so it's um, it's a challenge yeah my mind can't I can't logically wrap my head around why so many people are like that it, it, I mean just looking again at the logic, that you all present in the work, the, the amount of years and the work that's been put in by you and others who have been doing this for 60, 70 plus years. I mean, what are you supposed to think? And, and, and to understand the logics of there, there's obviously a way to be hidden and not be seen, uh, to live out in these areas and to avoid man at all costs, unless by accident. Uh, I, I still, like I said, I, I can't, it's just hard to wrap my, my mind around people who wouldn't, think that there's a possibility that there's a very good possibility um that th this exists um one last thing uh, before we get towards the end here i know we've kept you guys on here and hopefully i've touched many of the things that you guys wanted to talk about if not i would love to have you back for a second run uh go ahead david yeah i just want to thank you guys both of you i knew we were in great hands uh danny when you said that you went out and purchased a copy of uh, Darcy's production, um, because that told me that you had an interest in it and you weren't going to gloss over this. You actually did your homework and then repeating saying that you and your wife were listening to some of the audio. So, you know, you were, you came to the, uh, to the office prepared and I do thank you for that. Um, I, I wanted to, I appreciate that, David. I wanted to be better prepared. You know, I was trying yeah. to get, get through all of Darcy's stuff. All of Jeff's, Jeff's, but I've been following Jeff forever, so a lot of it was still there. Uh, your stuff was new to me, and Shane, Shane's got a slew of things out there, and it was a process of going through, like Darcy said, like the good, the bad, and the ugly of some podcasts, some documentaries, uh, and that's all I really tried to do is, is show you guys respect because you deserve it, and thanks, well, and David, for the kind word. Yeah, and kudos to Elmer, too. I mean, Elmer, you yeah. were listening. I could tell you were listening by the questions you asked. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, I've been into Bigfoot ever since I was a little kid. You know, Unsolved Mysteries was my 
you know, gateway drug for, you know, UFOs, Bigfoot, all that stuff. You know, it's it's just been ingrained in me. I remember like going to Tennessee and telling my mom I'm looking for Bigfoot when I was like eight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, and, and I don't know if you guys know, but Elmer is uh, deeply involved in the Mothman uh, deal that's down there in West Virginia. And he does tours and whatnot. So um, he's got Very his information. Cool. He's he's a quiet guy, but when he's got something to ask or say, he definitely sometimes is right on point. <laughs> I got to get going, guys, but I, I really appreciate being on the show. Uh, just before yeah, I wrap you. up, I would love to just plug one thing. Uh, if people want to see other uh, films that I've produced, um, like the other Sasquatch film or some of the UFO docs that I've worked on, they can just go to my website, Occult journeys.com and I have the trailers there description of the film the posters if you click on the poster it'll go through to a site that you can watch it Um, some of them you can watch them for free on like 2b tv but uh, again thank you so much Dr. Meldrum good to see you again of course David Ellis and Shane you guys are the the best Uh, wish you all well and stay safe thank you Darcy See you guys. Thanks, Darcy. Bye. Uh, bye-bye. Dr. Meldrum, you're up next. Uh, where can everybody find you and what do you have to plug? Well, if you haven't gotten a copy of Sasquatch Legend Meet Science, it's a, it's a good one to uh, add to your library or start as a springboard into the growing literature. Be, be discriminating in your selections. And I think this is a good start. Um, <laughs> I, would just, I would just like to direct people to... Uh, the relic hominoid inquiry. Um, you know, we we started off strong on that theme of citizen science, and the relic hominoid inquiry is a professional journal. It's um, you know, it's it's submissions come from uh, PhDs and other uh, academics, or academics or professionals with appropriate credentials, uh, but uh, it's accessible and. Uh, because it's a purely online we don't have you know page limits and page costs to worry about so they're they're uh, uh, replete with with lots and lots of color illustrations to um, um, to demonstrate the uh, points that the authors are making I'm, I'm a very visual person and and much of this lends itself to a very uh, visual conveyance of, of information so that's uh, www.isu.edu forward slash RHI, Relic Hominoid Inquiry. And um, otherwise, I don't have a web page, but I, I tend to post things regularly on Facebook appearances or podcasts like this and, uh, and other interesting bits of science news and so forth that comes across my desk and might have some interest or pertinence to the broader question of, of uh just what Sasquatch is and whether it exists or not. Well, if you're ever in Michigan and you're doing an event, uh, I would love to uh, meet you in person and uh, go from there and uh, definitely be there to show you some support. But thank you so much because uh, I know Elmer and I were looking forward to uh, having you on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Shane, you're up next. Where can we, where, where can we find you? And, and, uh, let us know all the great good things that we can get and, and learn about you. Um, on pretty much every social media site, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Of course, there is the Olympicproject.com. You could follow us there. 
um, on some some of the things we're working on and a good blog post on there from some of our other members. I also run a podcast called Monster X Radio. Airs about once or twice a week, and we just strictly talk Sasquatch. That's all we cover is Sasquatch. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we do have a couple of things coming down the road here. I have a couple of speaking engagements. I'm going to be in Ohio next month, and I'm going to be in Medellin Falls, Washington in June. And there's a couple other things here and there, um, speaking engagements. So, yep, I'm not, I'm, I'll definitely be sharing more information about some of the stuff that the Olympic Project is working on, as well as uh, some of the nest study stuff uh, that we've been working on for the last uh, five years. I think it's really interesting in some of the more recent findings in regards to that nest study site. So uh, stay tuned for that. Um, and you could definitely hear a lot of that stuff on Monster X Radio. Yeah. And Shane, just a shout out. If you'd love to network your podcast over here with us for free on uh, www, uh, uh, the Michigan 69 podcast.com network. That's the network that we put all this out on. I'd love to have you on board. Uh, no cost just to network your brother and have you on, uh, have you have your own page with your, with your show and whatever else. And we'll keep on getting the word out. Hey, I appreciate that, Danny. I will definitely uh, be in talks with you. Uh, send me or I'll send you an email. Thank yeah, you. By all means. David, you're up next, yes. my friend. Well, Where can we find you? It's short and sweet. You can reach me at uh, olympicproject.com uh, under contacts, David Ellis. Um, I don't maintain any other social media um as far as uh, Bigfoot goes. So yeah, reach me through olympicproject.com. Uh, I would just like to re remind people if you have a cell phone and you hear something, become familiar with it so that you can turn it on and capture it and send it to me. <laughs> so I'm always curious. Uh, some of the best recordings I've ever got have been on cell phone, believe it or not. I believe it. It's a great tool. And uh, again, Big thanks to my co-host, Elmer, for being here. And uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for putting up with us and being on this program. And uh, we know we're not the big guys on the block, but uh, you have made our 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 year. You've made our year. Uh, you know, all, all four of you are, are, like I said, people that we definitely wanted to talk to and meet. And uh, the, the invite is uh, out again that if you'd like to return at a later date and uh, Bob's on board and I don't have to do as much talking, uh, which is probably the best way to go anyway, um, <laughs> then uh, we'd I, love I to have you back no, on anytime. I didn't see anybody twisting your arm there, um, Dan. Uh, no, they never, they never <laughs> do. What are you saying, Elmer? This is why I do podcasts. I love you, buddy. I love, I love you. I love yeah, you. I love, I love yeah. you too, man. And, uh, <laughs> You gentlemen, keep yourselves safe. And uh, again, my my immense thanks for being on the program. It meant a lot to us. And uh, I love each and every one of you for your own work and your own right. And uh, just keep doing the good work out there. And I'm going to keep following along and watching. Yeah, thank you guys for being on too. You can also find us at www.themichigan69podcast.com. Don't forget some of our great sponsors, Henderson Castle, hendersoncastle.com. 1895 Bed and Breakfast right here in historic downtown Kalamazoo. And one of our great sponsors, Gun Barrel Coffee. Yes, I'm drinking it right now. GunBarrelCoffee.com. You've had the rest. Drink the best. Owned and run by veterans. Proceeds go to veterans. And uh, shout out to Live Radio 1, who also motherships this program. And again, gentlemen, thank you. And we will catch you again next time right here on I Want to Believe Radio.